know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full Welcome to episode 69 of Anglo Fees. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. The, the, the punchline was there, and you just you knocked it down with just sheer skill there. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you. I practice. It's a uh, dick joke. <laughs> it's a dick joke. And the dick is Chris Pines. It's, it's Pines, you know pine mm. I thought you were going to say pine nuts I didn't, we didn't see those though we could just we go with Chris Peen like, my choice is Chris Peen first, <laughs> first of all I would like to complain because I have heard an awful lot about Chris Pine's penis and I expected a whole lot of it in the movie and it just didn't live up to the hype <laughs> per se but yeah. this is the thing: is like full frontal male nudity in American cinema is really rare. Yeah, um, you seldom see a dick. Um, I mean, think about the fact that Fifty Shades of Grey exists and you don't see dick. Well, so you know, Netflix is going boldly where no man has gone before. Well, David McKenzie goes there all the time because all of his films are full of dick. Like he can't get Ewan McGregor to keep his pants on in Young Adam. Mm. <laughs> so we are talking about Outlooking audience that that's that's what's happening right i mean we're mostly talking about chris pine's dick but we're gonna talk about right. it well, we're gonna talk about it we're gonna just... see dick a lot in this episode let's just get all the giggles out of the way now <laughs> dick. i mean it, it was pretty it was pretty history adjacent and i feel like the <laughs> the claims to historical accuracy are only because it gets to stand next to braveheart and and like look good in comparison I mean, look, from a costuming perspective, there were only two things that made me raise my eyebrows and go, hmm, hmm. And one was a hat that one of the dudes was wearing. And one was a what looked like a Norse apron dress that one of the peasant women was wearing that was not even all that well made that I, I went. That those two things are off, but the rest of it was pretty good. I'm pretty impressed, actually. Good job, costumers. You know, considering that I'm now watching season three of The Last Kingdom, which is a Netflix show set during the reign of Alfred the Great in England, and the costumes on that are like really obviously sharing the costume department with Game of Thrones. Mm. So, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, we should point out, this film, at least for a while, was billed as a really big deal for Netflix. It's a big budget. It's a proper historical epic. It is something that they can at least use the phrase inspired by or, you know, next to Game of Thrones in a way, which is obviously something that everyone is doing right now. 
uh, it opened the Toronto Film Festival where I was. They gave it a brief cinematic release in Scotland, which, you know, bravo, kudos. Um, this was kind of for a while considered this might be the next step for the streaming service. I don't know if it's necessarily fulfilled that. I think other films that premiered at TIFF in particular, which I was at this year, um, did uh, that I'm job sorry. there. Where were you? Did you? <laughs> I've really not. I've really kept this quiet. I've not talked about it all that much. That's just because we haven't recorded since then. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but if you, I assume that you're all following us on Twitter and you've seen me never shut up about it. But yeah, I was um, lucky enough to get to go to the Toronto Film Festival this year to cover it for work. Um, so I got to go to Canada, which was very cool. We got to be in uh, the same city again. It's true. I got to hang out with Alina a couple of times. She took me for Korean food, which was very, very nice, and sushi. Um, and that was really the kind of only interesting Canadian food I ate. I mostly just ate in a coffee shop or the free food that was in the press room. Oh, I also got biscuits out of a drugstore with Alina. And I ate a lot of biscuits. Anyway, when I was at Toronto... B- biscuits or cookies? <laughs> Oh, both. Actually, it was Cadbury's chocolate fingers, but they were in French. Oh, okay. She she got cookies, but before that, we went to Popeyes, so she also had an American biscuit. Okay. I have never. We don't have Popeyes in Scotland at all, so you know what do you? What do you? What's the first thing you eat when you get to Canada? You know, American food, of course. Um, But when I was at. I was covering the festival for work, I was doing critical work, and I saw Outlaw King there. I didn't see the actual big premiere night, I saw the next day screening. But when I was there, there was also the premiere of Roma, the new Alfonso Cuarón film, which I sadly missed. But that's the Netflix film that I think is getting them more of that clout in terms of here is the future of the platform, because that thing is currently an Oscar frontrunner. Outlocking is more kind of the film you'd recommend to your parents to watch on a Friday night, which I did for my parents, mm. actually. And I should say that I liked Outlocking a lot more than some critics. However, the version I saw at TIFF is 20 minutes longer than what oh. you two... I didn't the deck realize is there was a difference. That's fine. But, um, no, yeah, the tw- um, and it's weird because I think that it's to the detriment of the film. I've heard a lot of people say it's not. Personally, I wish they'd kept those 20 minutes. And I actually think that this thing would have benefited more from being like a miniseries. Like, fully develop this really complex, tangled period of Scottish history. Because a lot of the interactions in this film kind of boil down to Bruce meeting someone and him going, I don't like you, or I like you, I'll be with you. And then they kind of go on with their day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's especially for someone who knows the history it kind of gets a little bit frustrating and there are certain scenes they cut which we'll get to that I think is also really bad what the big mistake is they cut out a lot of the scenes involving Elizabeth de Burr Mm. who is played by fascinating and is played by the absolutely brilliant uh, Florence Pugh who is in Lady Macbeth which is brilliant, she's currently on TV in the BBC on um, The Little Drummer Girl with Alexandra Skarsgård. She's going to be in The New Little Women. She is sickeningly talented, honestly. She's amazing. Like, seriously, she is going to be the next big thing. I guarantee it. Uh, She was also in the most recent version of King Lear with Anthony Hopkins. She played Cordelia. But she plays Elizabeth de Burr, who is the second wife of Robert the Bruce, and in the original cut that I saw, there's a lot more interactions between the two of them. There's more interactions between her and Bruce's daughter, 
Like you really get a sense of them actually growing to be a unit and her being part of this family and this cause. And it's such a good use of Florence Pugh, who's just, oh, I could I, I could be here all day talking about how brilliant I think she is. So I want to comment on that. But before we get to that, I want to do a quick aside that I don't think we can fit anywhere else. Your assessment of the accent. <laughs> okay, I give, I give him a solid 6 out of 10. I don't think it's that bad. I think he equips himself you know, strongly enough. He rolls his R's a little bit too much. My big problem with him wasn't Chris Payne. My big problem with him was Aaron Taylor Johnson. Aaron Taylor Johnson has never met an accent he didn't like. We talk about Tom Hardy and accents, but did you see that boy in the Avengers Age of Ultron? <laughs> that man will, that. Will, will dive into any accent and go about five steps too far and then take another step. See, I think that Aaron Taylor Johnson is an interesting actor, and he's clearly jumped headfirst into his like quirky character actor phase with Gusto. He was really like slimy and disgusting and scary and nocturnal animals. I think he's actually one of the better things in it. He was also in another film that premiered at TIFF, which was the adaptation of James Fry's A Million Little Pieces, directed by his wife, Sam Taylor Johnson, aka the director of Fifty Shades of Grey. I didn't see that one either. But in this film, I, he is, for lack of a better word, mental. Oh yeah, definitely. Which I get. He's playing Lord Douglas. He's playing Black Douglas, who is, you know, generally, like, if you're going to play someone as kind of mental, play the guy whose family was basically slaughtered and he decides to become one of the great, you know, real warriors against the English. But my problem is that Aaron Taylor Johnson seems to be playing him like he's in a Highlander movie. <laughs> he's playing like Nancy Brown in Highlander, but with none of the camp gusto. He's just a bit barmy. And I think if the film was bigger and more kind of boisterous, that would have worked. But actually, David McKenzie keeps things relatively grounded and somber. Well, first of all, I disagree that there's no camp gusto because that scene where he's just screaming Douglas as he slaughters people in the church. <laughs> fairly camp. Yep. He's <laughs> not the thing of the film. That's the thing. And I don't think it's necessarily. Like, I think that Aaron Taylor Johnson would shudder to be called Camp Gusto at any point. Or, you know. But that's the thing is maybe in a film where he, he is. I think he thinks he's in Braveheart. And the film is really working hard not to be Braveheart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, it's for the better, may I say. As someone who really hates Braveheart, who thinks that it is crudely drawn jingoistic bullshit made by a crudely drawn jingoistic asshole. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that this is also something that Scottish cinema in general has to deal with. If you are making a historical drama of this period in history, you're going to be doing it in the shadow of Mel Gibson and David Mackenzie, an actual Scottish person, working with at least one actual Scottish writer in a film actually shot here full of Scottish actors knows that he cannot make a piece of kitsch iconography. Mm-hmm. So there's no rolling around in the heather and the tartan here. This is, you know, much more about the t- sticky complexities of this revered historical figure. Because Robert de Bruce was kind of an asshole. <laughs> Robert de Bruce murders a man at a church. Mm. Tough to come back from when you're trying to create a traditional cinematic hero. And I think that David McKenzie is smart in that he doesn't bother. But he's really strong in making the case. Robert the Bruce is the best possible scenario right now. Also, yeah. he cast Chris Pine, who's, you know, so charismatic that people will just love a character he plays. Even with that mullet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to what you said 
about them cutting out Elizabeth de scenes because it addresses one of the problems I had with the movie when it ended is that they had that one scene which showed why Robert would come to admire her when she saves like a really young boy from being conscripted. But they also show them suddenly like they're in love with each other, but there really was no scenes which would show why would she warm up to him. Yeah, there's a little more of that in the original cut, but there's also just more of Elizabeth spending time with Bruce's daughter. Like That's kind of her real connection to the family. It's just a waste as well, because I think that the the original cut certainly could have given more to do for Elizabeth, but it's just really chopped down even further in this cut. And you get the sense that, like, I know that David McKenzie has been given an interview saying, oh, I, you know, this is the cut that I really wanted to release and all of these things. Uh, but you get the feeling that this was just some Netflix executive who's like, cut out the silly girly stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a shame, because honestly, you could watch a whole film of, of Florence Pugh playing Elizabeth de Burr. Also, they're Netflix. It's not like they're afraid people aren't going to sit through it in the cinema. People right, exactly. on Netflix, that's the thing. A, you fast forward through the stuff you don't like, and B, you're a lot more forgiving towards length. Because you're more comfortable and you didn't travel anywhere to see it. So I feel like if anywhere can just release like kind of longer cuts of movies, it would be Netflix. Yeah, that was another reason I was baffled by them deciding to cut it. Because they don't need to worry about like squeezing in more screenings at the multiplex. Right. Mm-hmm. If people even just watch half of the movie, then, you know, that's probably still an in a win for Netflix, you know? It, dro- it drove people to the service, so why would that be a problem? Uh, that's one of the reasons I think it would have been really cool to see this as, you know, a big, vast mini-series. Mm-hmm. You want to see much more of, like, the, you know, the, the, the dealings of the nobility who have to reconcile the fact that, yeah, you, you've, they've got their lands back, but they've completely sold out their people in the process and made themselves look like you know, backstabbing cowards, which, frankly, a lot of them were. The other problem with, you know, making it a movie is that I'm one of those assholes who watches it with Wikipedia on her phone. And, (laughs) you know, it's really awkward when you have this two-hour movie describing a 12-year span of history when, you know, like in the end when... um, Elizabeth and Robert reunite and it's like well eventually they agree to a prisoner exchange and it's like yeah eight years later the movie's acting like they've been apart for a couple of months the truth is they basically had no relationship because they were apart for years they had those 14 kids later you know in the last (laughs) couple like it's it's really hard to squeeze these because like in the movie everything looks like it happens within a span of weeks when in reality it's happened you know there's like the spans of time are so much longer I mean, that's another reason it's sort of baffling that this is a movie instead. Because there are plenty of other ways that they could have done it. And also, like, this seems like the kind of thing Netflix would want to pump more money into. Yeah. Because um, everyone, that's what I'm saying, everyone wants their own Game of Thrones. You're seeing this with the fact that Lord that the Lord of the Rings series Amazon are making, this is going to cost them half a billion dollars. So... Why, given how much of ne- of Game of Thrones, you, you know, once you remove the dragons and the White Walkers, really prizes itself on being an allegorical retelling of you know English history, why not just tell Scottish history? You know, if you want to add a dragon, and go make something else. Um, <laughs> but so there is no, a scene- if you add a dragon, then you have Welsh history. <laughs> well, I will say there's a scene that the original cut has that the new one doesn't that I wish they'd kept in. 
Uh, and here's something, it's bullshit history, it definitely didn't happen, and it's usually the kind of occurrence in historical dramas I hate, but I really liked it in this context, and there's a scene about 15 minutes into the original cut where Bruce and Edward II, or Prince Edward at the time, who, once again, is, is played as an absolute bastard because he was, yep. um, are going on a, what is a hunting trip because they've been informed that there are some rebels hiding in the woods and they bump into the last remaining dregs, essentially, of the rebellion and they meet William Wallace. Now, this definitely didn't happen, but the reason that I was so taken with this scene was this is such a massive fuck you to Braveheart because <laughs> you see Wallace... He's a tall guy, but he's not obviously the seven-foot-tall giant he was written about in folklore, because Chris Pine's about, what, 6'2", six 6'3", six so he's about that height. Yeah. He's incredibly skinny, he's primal-looking, long hair, messy beard, dirt, you know, clothes hanging off of him. And you realise like, like what it's like to see the sort of deified figure of Scottish history be reduced to what he was at the end of his life, which was basically a desperate man who, with no hope and really no connection left to the real world and he kind of has a massive a little bit of a screw you moment to bruce like you know i'm still out here fighting you just sold it what the hell would i want to talk to you for bruce kind of helps him get away but then the next time you see anything of wallace is when they're hanging his leg up in um is it Berwick where his leg was hung well the thing is i thought seeing the netflix cut where you just where the first mention of him is when they you know hang up his leg after he's drawn and quartered and i thought that was kind of a fuck you to braveheart where like you're not even gonna see him in this movie here's his leg no he's dead it's it's dead. I mean, that certainly works on that front i think that I, I would have preferred that they kept seeing just so that you understood what had been lost i understood that i understand maybe they want to remove it because they still want to kind of keep the legend alive that's the point is um but i think you still need an understanding of the divide between bruce his family and the actual rebels on that front because also in the new cut bruce doesn't seem all that bothered by the english he, and in the original cut, I, he definitely is i i felt that he was like resigned to the whole thing. The original cut, he's at least a little more resentful. Mm-hmm. And I get like going for apathy is an interesting angle, but I don't think it makes Bruce all that interesting in t- to start the story off with. And you need him to, you need to at least on some level understand what this man has been bottling up for so long. And I'm not sure that the new cut necessarily does that as well. I think Chris Pine does a very good job. I still think he's best Chris. I still think that he is probably the best actor of the the four Chris's. I would agree but with that. There's, there's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would like to have seen him get more. And I think that's why I wanted more just in terms of length. I wanted more in terms of content. There was just so many places this could have gone. And I, I honestly, when talking like this, it makes it sound like I really hate it. I don't. I promise. It is just... It's weird that Netflix wanted so many corners cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. Let's talk about Edward a little bit because I I didn't rewatch Braveheart because I'm never watching a Mel Gibson movie again. But from what I remember, it and now kind of knowing more about Mel Gibson than I did obviously as a kid, it kind of makes sense that oh well we know Edward was gay, therefore this movie is going to show him as that weak and ineffectual, etc. Whereas Outlook King goes for more of a, like, no, this guy was an asshole and everybody hated him, which I think is historically true, but also kind of, like, went into this 
not campy exactly, but almost caricature type place. You know what I mean? Well, I think this is another rejection. Sorry, I think this is another rejection of Braveheart because in Braveheart, Edward II isn't just conniving. He is every homophobic stereotype of the gay villain that's mm-hmm. ever existed. Mm-hmm. And in this one, they don't do that. And I think you see more of him as just sort of an ineffectual, petulant brat, which I like. It's certainly big, but also every report of Edward II is that he was like that. Yeah. He was yeah. just the most unbearable little bastard to be around. Exactly, which is why when his wife and his son were like, um, we're going to depose him, all the nobles were like, thank fucking God. <laughs> yeah. By the way, and here we come to my actual biggest problem with the movie, which is where it goes for something cinematic, but that just does not work. As like, very end of the movie, we've got the big battle, we've decided it's going to be the climax of the movie, the, like the first big victory. And they decide for this to happen at the very end, Edward is cut off alone behind enemy lines. He's holding multiple friends and family hostage. Minutes ago, we had Robert say that he doesn't know where his daughter is, but like he wishes he did and he wants her safe. And here is the King of England alone, surrounded by Scottish troops. And they let him go. They let him literally crawl off into the distance, just sitting there. I'm sorry, what? What the fuck was that? What the fuck? I think that's a story beat that works better when it's not a historical drama. Because mm-hmm. humiliating a sniveling little prick, as opposed to freeing story. his wife and child, I d- oh, it makes me so mad. So it just does not work logically within the movie. There's no way they'd let him go. If this was a fantasy, there's no way they'd let him go because their wives and children are hostage and they need to free them. And here's the opposing king. Like what? Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having to rage at Right, I mean, it's vaguely related to what really happened at that battle, which was, I mean, loosely, which was that Edward was basically dragged off kicking and screaming during the retreat by his own people. And he was like, we're going to get him! We're going to get him! And they're like, no, we're not! Honestly, that would have been better. That would have been, to me, a better cinematic moment is showing him to continue being this stupid brat who doesn't know when he's beat. Uh, it just like that that moment really pissed me off because I was like, movie, come on, like they're suspending disbelief, and then there's just being stupid, mm. especially since they had that moment of Robert talking to the little girl <clears throat> and going, "I have a daughter your age, and I don't know where she is." Apparently, he doesn't give a fuck. The heat of the battle, I don't know. Like that's the thing is, I have a problem with the idea that historical drama should 100% adhere to history because. History and stories tend to not entirely work in conjunction with one another. History doesn't follow the three-act structure. No. Well, it's not just that. I, I One of my favorite things to talk about is biopics. And I was um, one of the things that comes up a lot in biopic studies, if you do anything in terms of um, film academia, is the, the need for neatness and resolution. Mm-hmm. So that's why so many of the biopics of quote-unquote great figures end at a high point in their life mm-hmm. because no one ever wants to see like the sad downfall or the you know how the sort of weak mediocre or sliding into the end of their life or whatever 
there are plenty of films that reject that formula and do it really well, uh, but we're then kind of less likely to refer to them as biopics. And I know this is not a biopic. This would be specifically called a historical drama, and they kind of operate by their own rules. But the expectation of a film like this is that it should play as a particular kind of action film. Like, there's absolutely no way David McKenzie didn't have a meeting talking about this film where where Braveheart did not come up, or Rob Roy, or even films that aren't really... Or Game of Thrones, that's the thing, is this film has to operate within a specific storytelling structure. It has to operate in a specific area of Hollywood, of the entertainment industry, of, frankly, the demands of the country. And it bodes well for Scotland if this film ends in a triumphant note and then just has, oh, actually it took about another 20 years for them to deal with this shit, like card that they stick at the end. Mm-hmm. So I am perfectly willing to bend the rules there. I mean, there are certain areas where it becomes too egregious. I would give the recent Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody that honour or dishonour because the way that that film fucks with history is morally repugnant. But what Outlaw King does, I think, is almost... It's not that you can't complain about it, but it's happening in such a specific context that's happened for decades in cinema that it, my, my response to it is kind of... could have been worse, to be honest. And I'm someone who's really, really hypersensitive about shitty portrayals of Scottish history. Um, maybe I'm giving this one more leeway because it's actually made by Scottish people. But there's a reason the First Minister of Scotland went to the premiere of this movie. You know? Yeah. There's a reason that the Scottish National Party are big on this movie. Well, here's weird, because I actually think it rejects nationalism and that kind of shortbread tin, kitschy Scottishness out of hand. I would also think that Outlander <laughs> would be the, another big one that would come up in that meeting. Oh, definitely. Outlander's now pissing off to America, so we don't even get that anymore. <laughs> yeah, but it's still made in Scotland. Well, that's nice. We, we, we can't let that money leave the country, to be honest. Are you still watching that show? Oh, yeah. I'm still recapping it. My recaps are better than the Fug Girls recaps because they have no idea what the fuck is going on. I'll link to Raiden's recaps in the show notes. <clears throat> Make sure our readers Why skips. have they got a kid now and she's an adult and she's getting her own weird romance now? How the fuck did that happen? Is that in the books? Yeah, it's yes. in the books. Uh, well, she went back to the modern age, had the kid, and then didn't come back until the kid was grown up, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were apart for 20 years because she... Like, right before Culloden... Claire goes back to nineteen the 1940s and figure and Jamie was like I'm gonna go back to the battle I'm probably gonna die so you should go back you're pregnant raise our kid remember me everything I'm not gonna say everything's gonna be fine but it's it's better this way um, only he doesn't die and she finds out. 20 years later when Brianna has grown up. And her husband has died. And her husband has died. The Con- Jamie oh, that's five- convenient. Yeah, conveniently fucked off to the afterlife. <laughs> then Claire fi- finds out that not only did he survive Culloden, he, he has survived the 20 years since. And she's like, well, I'll try going back and see if I can find him. Because there's nothing for me here that I really like. My kid has grown and And that whole right to vote thing and contraception and Well she brings antibiotics with her, so But t- true love. <laughs> okay. Who needs plumbing and electricity? 
Um, in Russia, we have the saying, with your darling, it's heaven even in a tent. It's, okay. had, it's more pithy in Russian, and it's bullshit yeah. in any language. But Yeah. So they end up through ridiculousness. I mean, it's all ridiculous. These books are ridiculous, like, except that is read. Um, they end up in Jamaica for a bit. And then in ultimately they land in North Carolina. Is the daughter going back and forth in time? Cause I thought the daughter was no. in the past with them too. Not yet. Oh. I mean, in terms of the show, not yet. Okay. She will. I think I suspect that she's going to go back at the end of the episode that will air tomorrow. So they have to like now age the actors permanently with makeup. They- yeah, they don't work too hard at it. They're just kind of like, look, just accept that they're 20 years older. They both have some gray hair. It's fine. I watched just the episode where she like finds out, the season premiere where she finds out that he's alive and goes back. And essentially, they just gave her mom hair. Yeah, well, I mean, 60s mom hair. Yes. And now that she doesn't have hairspray, it's, you know, she has some grays, gray hair. And... I'm fine with that because recasting would have been a mess. Oh, yeah. And aging makeup would have looked bad. So just accept it. It's fine. So when does this all end? Uh, It hasn't yet. I mean, the books are still... The books are still being published. That money's not dried up. Don't you worry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry. Unfortunately, unfortunately, after... This se- the book that this season is based on ends is the dreaded book five point that many authors get to when there's there's a loss of editorial control. <laughs> so this is when the books get like seven hundred pages longer. Truly ridiculous, and like book five is called the Fiery Cross, and the first three hundred pages take place like over one day i'm exaggerating the page count but not by a lot but these were never like short books to begin oh they were never short but there's really the point where it's like okay you have a whole book in which not a lot happens robert jordan lasted until book eight before that became a problem because yeah that was the good old days when you know editorial control like kept an eye on things for a good six or seven books but then yeah has Stephen no. King taught these people nothing has... like Stephen King is very open about the fact that he's like I am shit without an editor check out my cocaine years <laughs> someone should give JK Rowling his number yeah right right but like the Harry Potter books it happened at exactly the same time that book four you're like I feel like the editor was not as heavy-handed as they could have been and then by book five you're like well because if you look at them on the shelf there's the first three books and then book four is as thick as the first three books combined exactly i remember when it all came out we were still like teenagers and we were like whoa this is different so where are the outlander books currently like Uh, like, where does the series end so far or where is at I haven't even read the last one. So the most recent book 
is up to 1778. So we are in the thick of the American Revolution. Like at some point, she just got tired of having to pretend to give a shit about researching Scottish history, right? Because she didn't to begin with. And she's I mean, like, no, she bragged extensively about how much research she'd done for it, but then didn't do the research to realize that actually rationing was still going on for clothes after the Second World War. But like, you know, I guess maybe she wanted a different period of history to research. I mean, when she wrote the first one, she described Outland, the first book, as I was never really intending this to be published. This was my practice book. And then, you know, things happened. She was not too concerned about the World War II 20th century aspect of it. It was also, it was the early 90s. It was pre a lot of internet and Google. And is that why they constantly say Sassanach? Which is not something that was really sad. No. <laughs> no. No, uh, yeah, the the Gaelic in especially Gaelic. the first book. The Gaelic, sorry. <laughs> like, I did a year of it and I'm gonna fucking milk it, okay? The Gaelic in the first book, she's like yeah, no, it was not good. <laughs> I it it does a few things change in the second book as like somebody wrote her and was like I know you're trying to say like my brown one in this one but that's not how you would say it so it does change but the the Sassanac thing stays because everybody loves that it's just so romantic is it for (laughs) so is she ever actually going to end the series or are they just going to keep going on until they end up in like the Victorian era or something um, Still shagging relentlessly. I imagine that the series will end when she dies. Let me put it this way: Do you think George Martin is ever publishing another book? You know what? Let's let's not be too mean about George R. R. Martin because I think if I had to live in a world where people were constantly like, "We're really scared you're going to die," so can you finish <laughs> writing the book? <laughs> he's actually okay. To be fair, he's publishing another book. Just. It's not Winds of Winter. He's publishing... He's off... Look, I think it'd be easier for, easier for everyone if he just admits that he's off it. That we can just imagine whatever ending we want to imagine. But he's now more interested in, like, playing in the sandbox he made. He's writing this book that's like the golden age of the Targaryen rule. That's what he wants. I think Dance of the Dragons, I think, is that where the next book is coming from? He's mm-hmm. just off it. He's off it. He doesn't want to write this anymore. He's already admitted to Diana Gabadon, actually, that he killed the character that he wasn't supposed to kill, and now he doesn't know how to do a storyline because that character was supposed to be in it. He asked her, like, have you ever killed somebody that realized you needed them? She's like, no, George. No, that's just you. That's a you problem. <laughs> do we know who it was? I don't think so. I don't think she's ever... I don't think. I don't even know if he told her, like, this comes from. Mm-hmm. So... You know, Diana Gabaldon has other things to worry about, like her constant weird thing about rape. Yeah, her constant weird thing about rape. Her constant weird thing about fanfic. Which is so weird and sad. Uh, Like, it's not comparable to people breaking into your house and trying to hurt your children. Can we just get that out of the way? Yeah. Um, Maybe don't tell the lead actor in your project. You can't wait to see him be raped. Uh, yeah. Oh. 
Like, on one hand, it's if she has a thing about fanfic, then I understand not wanting to be E.L. James. On the other thing, she's already E.L. Jamesing it up. Yeah, isn't Jamie just from fucking Doctor Who? No, no, not really. It's certainly heavily inspired by. It It's heavily inspired by, but he's not supposed to be that character. She just was like, yeah, okay. I like how we can tell who the Outlander fan is, like the three of us in this conversation. <laughs> I, I couldn't finish reading the first book because I have a like really low tolerance for Americans writing Scots. And every time someone said the word Sassanac or Bonnie Lass, I was like, that's the tap out noise. Hang on a sec. Yeah. There. Um, I mean, look, when I do the recaps, I refuse to do, to write the Scottish accent. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I would just generally recommend to a lot of authors not to do that. I, I hate the writing the accent thing. I my, I kind of understand why a lot of people do it and why it's popular in writing, but I feel like you don't transcri- transcribe every um and like that your characters would realistically say, so don't do it with the accents either. Just mention that they have an accent or whatever, or it's understood because of who they are, and then just write what they say. Write what they say. Joanna Bourne in The Spymaster's Lady writes her dialogue so well that you can tell what language the characters are speaking. It's all in English, but you can always tell, like, oh, you are now speaking German because the sentence construction changed. You're now speaking French because the sentence construction changed. You can do that with accents as well. You get the slang right, but like just don't (laughs) or at least get the insulting right you know yeah yes get the insults right well because i read Alyssa Alyssa cole's new book which is called duke by default Mm -hmm. and it's set in edinburgh and there is a stream of swearing in it that is just it is (laughs) beautiful because she clearly asked actual scottish people i need your insults and we were like Let's fucking do this. Yeah. Um, so I was a very big fan of that, even though I'm not entirely sure why she made up a region of Edinburgh to set it in, because she's clearly set the book in Leaf, but it's not called Leaf. Anyway, I really like that book. You should read it. But yeah, just like go wild and stuff like that. But you don't need to break it down as like, oh, hi, the new all the time. I promise you, we do not care that much. <laughs> we will we will care much more if you make us sound semi-illiterate by trying to type things out phonetically. Mm-hmm. And that's not just a Scottish thing. I think every region has that accent. Like, how many times have you read something where a character is Russian? Oh yeah, and oh. it's it's full nuclear vessels. It's so many, and yeah, like you, I can't make it through it either. But let's face it, like Diana Gabaldon isn't writing it because she wants you, the Scottish people, to feel like she understands it. She's writing it because the American oh, audience, yeah. like, it's there for the people who also don't know any better and think like this is so such a cool little like cultural. That's why it's annoying, right? Like that's why when I read or watch like TV with like fake Russians, I, it's not there for the Russians; it's there for the Americans who think this is how it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely! It's definitely part of that. I mean, this is another thing with Outlaw King that I find is really interesting is David McKenzie is clearly aware that mm. this film is for an international audience, but he's also aware if he fucks this up, he can't come home because he still lives in Scotland. <laughs> right. He, he actually went to university in Dundee. It's not my university. He went to DJ CAD, which is the art school around the corner. But, you know, he actually stays here. You know, he was someone who went to America and then came back, which we're very big fans of mm-hmm. because we don't have a lot of Scottish filmmakers, unfortunately. We really don't have the educational system in place to do a film school 
Um, we have you, if you want to like study film production, you can do it in Edinburgh Napier, but really your better option is you you go abroad or you go down south. Um, so there's I think there is certainly for the handful of Scottish filmmakers left, there's a sense of you know certainly loyalty, but also awareness if you're one of only a handful of people doing the thing, you need to do the thing well because otherwise you you may not get another chance to do it. People following after you may not get a chance to do it and you may just have to like go off and do American things instead. Like Lynn Ramsey, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, but she makes films set in and about America now. Mm-hmm. And they're great, but, you know, it's another one down. <laughs> Can we talk about the kilts for a second and how there aren't any and why yes. there isn't supposed to be any? Take it away. Okay. So... If you watch Outlaw King and you were like, why aren't they wearing kilts? It's because the kilt was not a thing in that time period. The great kilt, as we know it, was invented in the 16th century. And this is way before that. Fuck Mel Gibson. Fuck you. Also, the tartan plaid thing. Also not a thing at that point. Fuck you. Yeah, you need to wait a few more hundred years for that. And the family tartan plaid thing. Thank you, Victoria. And we're still milking from that dried up teat to this day. Look. I'll Wait, give do you, you want a Highland right? cow, cuddly Highland cow with a nice little tartan bonnet? We can get that for you. I have one. His name is Fergus. <laughs> Did I say it right? Yes. Remember when we discovered his name was Fergus and you yeah. were <laughs> It absolutely made Raiden's Day when we went into one of about 28 tatty tartan tourist shops on the Royal Mile and she met Fergus. Really, yes. every other shop is like cashmere and tartan cashmere. Like every other shop. Yeah, fudge. Lots of fudge. Fudge. Shortbread. And um, handbag shortbread. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it was so cold this weekend in Boston that I actually had to break out my wall tartan scarf that I love dearly. Nice. Even though people, there are a bunch of people who look at it because it's it's black and yellow and go, oh, Hufflepuff! And I'm like, fuck you! I am not a Hufflepuff. I am many things, but I'm not a Hufflepuff. At least they don't think you're from Pittsburgh. No. Wasn't that with the black and yellow and the sports team and the song there's a song it's pittsburgh the team with that weird monster no 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 that's philly that's philly okay because the internet seems to be in love with that thing and i don't oh gritty is awesome gritty (laughs) is awesome in a hero of the left so i talk about weird sporting mascots Uh, scotland got there first with kingsley yeah who is if you have ever seen a giant Lisa Simpson style yellow sunflower with a mono brow and big white eyes and wondered what the fuck is that get away from me that's Kingsley who's Partick Thistle's mascot mm-hmm. there's a great video I wish I could find out but there is of him walking towards the camera and the music from the exorcist is playing <laughs> it's beautiful but yeah I am just fascinated by this internet love for a football or it's not football it's hockey right hockey, hockey. it is hockey he did give a really wonderful interview to Time Magazine. He did. <laughs> Where he talks about drinking gravy for a straw. <laughs> but what about stuffing gravy through a straw? Which is very... I mean, like, Philly sports culture is weird. 
Well, I heard about this because they won the Super Bowl and my feed was full of people from Philly who were like, I'm happy, but I will never see my car again. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. <laughs> Wait, you're, 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 you're from Boston. How is that, like, not as scary as your sports culture? Because I hear shit about Bostons all the time. Okay. One, we don't climb the light posts, although there were people who tried when the Red Sox won the World Series this year. And it's just not as insane. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. How does anyone from the country of soccer hooliganism get to accuse any other culture of being crazy about sports? Well, because I'm Scottish and we don't win stuff that often. <laughs> Having said that, we beat both Albania and Israel recently. So I'm just saying we might win or at least get through to the next level of something. There you go. We almost beat South Africa at rugby. That was very exciting for us. But no, like, you, you guys have more punchy sports. I mean, you're from, you're from hockey country. When I was in Toronto, I would, like, flick through the channels and there would be reports on hockey games, but it wasn't even here are the results of the game. It was, like, here are two grown men punching each other on the ice for a solid ten minutes. Why else would you go to a game of hockey? Yeah. Well, I assume that was the reason everyone went, but it was, you know, did anyone want to know the results of this game, or did they just want to watch the violence? (laughs) (laughs) I was also fascinated to discover that Toronto likes baseball, so. Well, because we have Blue Jays. Right, the Blue Jays are actually pretty good. The other thing is, I didn't know you guys had a team, so I just... How do you... We've talked about this! (laughs) Yes, and for a long time, they were our best professional, like, league team like whenever we talk about sports i really only care if it's like olympic sports that you don't get to see any other time of the year you know i want to know about like a modern heptathlon you know sports i can use you know we have to combine fencing horse riding and shooting that stuff's important to me when it's like baseball i only really know it for jokes about baseball but i can name like teams like i know who the red Sox are i know who the yankees are no apparently you don't know who the blue jays are I yeah. think I won't yeah, remember I this. I saw their stadium all the time when I was there. Because <laughs> Lyft drivers would take us around that bit. I mean, uh, it's literally part of the sky- of the Toronto skyline is the Sky Dome. That's an impressive stadium, by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it still is, but it used to be the biggest uh, openable roof stadium in the world. There is a weird like sculpture of giant men bursting out the side of that building that I am fascinated by. <laughs> uh, but no, like we don't do baseball. We have we actually Dundee does have an ice hockey team, who apparently are quite good in the context of British hockey. But but uh, what is that context though? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. But I've always I go see them because I I can walk like forty minutes from my flat and go see a game. So I've, I've promised myself I will do it one day because also they sell alcohol there. So I wonder why hockey isn't bigger in the UK. I don't know. It seems like the kind of thing that we'd be super into. Mm-hmm. I mean, field hockey is a thing here. We're quite excited about that. But sports is really class-driven in the UK in a way that I don't know if it necessarily is in America or Canada. The only one that isn't really driven by can you afford to do it is football, which is the reason it gets quoted as the working class sport. Mm-hmm. Like, Rugby is like the posh version of football. Cricket is uber posh. All of the things that Scotland tend to be good at at sports are things that private school kids do, which is like rowing and cycling and boating and things like that. I don't know boating. How can rugby be the posh version of football? You don't need pads. 
Well, that's just because you can afford to do it. You know, if you, you can afford to break your neck and be off work for a few weeks. Oh, you mean the posh version of soccer football, not football football. Okay. You sort of need that. Real football. The one that you play with your feet, Raiden. But <laughs> I have had one day or two days off of work since election day, so shut up. <laughs> I've been working a lot. I don't really know what day it is, and I'm not going to. I mean, rugby is literally named after a private school as in public, you know what I mean, right? So yeah. it makes sense as the a posh sport. It's a very private school thing. Same with cricket. A, a few months ago, Scotland beat England at one game of cricket, and we've not <gasps> shut up about it since. Wow. <laughs> it's just full of like all of these people, like all these Scots are like, ah, oh, yeah, cricket. I always liked cricket. You know, the game with the the bat and the ball and the the thing where you stop for tea. So, <laughs> but yeah, football is right? the, the driving There's force here. Sticky wickets. Right? I think so. Wickets are a thing. Yes. Wickets okay. is a thing in cricket. I know that. They have the ashes, which is like the little cup that they but win. But they also like call it bowling instead of pitching, I think. You're making me Google cricket. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a slang question for you. In the UK, do they still, like, what we call private schools, do you call public schools still? Or did American well, take they over? Are, um, it's weird because technically they are called public schools, but they're private. You don't go to them in the public. It's another, This is another reason that you can get away with being posh, because you can fuck over the language. Um, but no, it's definitely that. I actually read read it, because like, I got curious, why did they call it? And according to the explanation I found, they were called public schools, because as long as you paid, you could go from anywhere in the country, as opposed to regular schooling, where you had to be like, you know, it's kind of your geographic region. Yeah. That makes sense. So that was the original. Okay. That was the original etymology. Is they were open to anyone from anywhere uh, as long as you paid to go there. Which is basically the the class system in a nutshell. You know, everyone can move upwards, and social mobility is completely possible if you've just got shit tons of money. It's kind of like that. You said like sports, whether it's a class thing, like in Canada, and I think the U.S. It's kind of the same. Like it's actually is expensive. So a lot of poorer kids can't afford organized sports. But on the other hand, it's also seen because of the U.S. Uh, athletic scholarships. I think mm-hmm. it, it also has this reputation as being a way out of poverty, essentially. Yeah, it has a reputation of bootstrapping. Which I say with all of the attendant bullshit that that phrase means. Hmm. It's weird as well, because you can certainly... You know, scholarships are a thing. Um, there is a private school in Dundee. It's called the, the High School of Dundee, which I think is slightly presumptuous. But they offer quite a lot of scholarships to local Dundonian students. But also, scholarship students get treated like shit. Because mm-hmm. when I was getting ready to go high school, my mum looked at getting me a scholarship for it. And around this time is when there were massive reports of incredibly violent bullying against scholarship kids. So, you know... Why would you put your kid through that? Yeah, maybe great in the long term, but do you want to fuck them up like that? Because I know people who went to Dundee High and went through that. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, I mean, maybe for other people it would be considered worth it, but I would rather have gone to a place where people didn't mock me for supposedly being poor. Um, it's a horrible crushing system. And I'm also, the region of Scotland that I am from, there are so many private schools in my area. Like, within a 50-mile radius of where I am from. There are several private schools. Mm-hmm. Private schools are in the news in Canada right now, specifically in Toronto, for a very bad reason. Um, I don't want to get into it here. If anybody's going to Google it, it is a trigger warning. 
for violence. So mm-hmm. definitely. Wow, we got we got help. real sidetracked. <laughs> I mean, Wait, even for happened. us, this is pretty this is, good. We're back, baby. We're back. <laughs> I mean, I guess slightly more off topic. I think I mentioned it earlier in a kind of related cinematic genre. And also on Netflix, the, the Last Kingdom is back for a new season. If anybody watches the History Channel's Vikings, The Last Kingdom, also based on a series of books, is in that kind of similar historical era. It's the Dane Law you know, part of England, and it's mostly about... it. The main historical setting is Alfred the Great trying to create a unified England. The main character, Uhtred, is somebody who was like a real histor- vague historical figure, and then apparently this writer just kind of picked him up and made his own kind of fake history version. It's Bernard Cornwall, right? I think it is, yeah. As a show, it's... Like, as a sexy fake history, it's pretty good. So if anybody's on that kick right now whether following the Outlaw King or just generally because they are, check it out. I watched the first episode and then they killed Matthew McFadden and I was like, oh, I'm out. Yeah, he was in there for about five minutes as the dad. So, Was he the Sean Bean of the series? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was the inciting death to kick off the plot. They fridged him. They did. They really did. They were really displayed did. by Alexander Draymond, who is very pretty. It's very pretty and does look like McFadden's son. It's really impressive casting. Also, in that first episode for about five minutes, was it Rutger Hauer? I want to say. I Maybe. think yeah, Rutger Hauer was like as a grandpa in there for five minutes. Vikings itself, I haven't seen for a couple of seasons. I do want to catch up. I do too. I have no idea what's going on. I uh, the last season I saw. I think I went through two seasons. The last season I saw was the one where they like ransacked Paris for a bit and then fucked off. I mean, <laughs> like who hasn't? So. <laughs> that was maybe rude, <laughs> but true. <laughs> I have fallen down into the hole of looking at prices for private schooling in Scotland. And yeah. Can we, like, overthrow the system now? <laughs> yes. I-, I thought you were down the cricket Wikipedia hole. Oh, that, that-, that window's also open. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how much is it for one year at Fettis College in Edinburgh? Guess. Um, in pounds? In pounds. Keep pound is about one dollar sixty in Canada. Yeah, so. I fifteen k ten. Keep going. Forty. Uh, just below. It's thirty five grand a year for Fettis College. My University of Toronto bachelor degree costs twenty thousand Canadian dollars, and to me, that's a lot. So Fettis College is the one in, it's in Edinburgh. It's the one that goes by the international baccalaureate system, the English uh-huh. schooling system, not Scotland's. You, know, you don't do standard grades or hires, which is what I did. It's a school that James Bond went to. Mm-hmm. Poor orphan that he was. <laughs> <laughs> but like the list of people who went to that college are, it's insane. Like multiple prime ministers, Tilda Swinton, people like that. How, what about the school that um, 
Philip sent Charles to that Charles hated. Is that Glen Almond? I think so. I think so. Whatever one that he hated. I don't know. I know it's no, there's like, Basically, all of them are old, horrible, drafty buildings where... <laughs> that, that was kind of the, the thing is these schools were wicked expensive to go to, but they were also, like, basically hovels. I don't think he went to Glen Almond. Gordonston. Gordonston was the school. Gordonston. Oh, Gordonston is infamous. Uh, Gordonston it was the, the, the really tough one. The um, I think that was one they did a documentary about a couple of years ago to show that it's evolved and look we are we don't like force kids to go swimming in the ice cold rivers anymore it's fine but we're still going to charge you you know twenty five thirty grand a year to send your kids there mm-hmm. well that's what I want to know how much is it is that one expensive that mu- that one must be expensive do you think they get more expensive once royalty goes there and they'll be like well royalty sends their kids here so you're gonna have to pay up. So Gardenstown is the second most expensive. You only have to pay thirty-four and a half thousand a year. That's for boarding. If you want day fees, that's that's just under twenty-six grand. What a bargain! Um, it probably is. I mean, I think there's certainly a level of exclusivity to it. Like when St Andrews University became the place that Will and Kate went to, mm-hmm. they, they, they really tried to up their reputation, which is weird because St Andrews is a very, very good university. Not great for like social stuff if you want to like go out and get pissed in edinburgh you take a bus and come to dundee uh, <laughs> get in st andrews i mean you know like edinburgh is the one that combines you know social aspects and culture and the history of the university and the lineage and all of these things but like st andrews really does like to think of itself as being the 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 oxbridge of the north because it's mm. the it's the oldest university in scotland it's the third oldest in the uk after oxford and cambridge um but you know I did apply just to see if I could get in. I didn't. Uh, I, I'd always want to go to Edinburgh because Edinburgh is a much cooler city. But yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing. The reason Prince William went to St Andrews is because it's really hard to put bulletproof glass in the flats in Edinburgh. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. you know, that, that's correct. actually a question for all, like sending kids to private school, of course, you'd expect to the royal family. On the other hand, they come with security concerns, you know, like that a regular, what we call a public school might just not be it just might be too disruptive, you know. It is that, and it's also if you do that whole I want to get an education and be out of the public eye and have a very quiet, you know, life for at least a couple of years that's free of the stresses of all these things, you can't really do that in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is a much busier city. Um, there's a much bigger media centre there. Um, there's there's probably more places to hide, but not if you've got a bunch of, you know, security trailing you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, like, Edinburgh's a really good place for other country to send their royalty. Like, I'm pretty sure a bunch of, like, the Japanese princesses went to Edinburgh. Politicians like to send their kids there as well. Uh, it's, you know, it's partly an exclusivity thing, which, uh, no offence to my Dundee, where I just graduated from, they don't really have that. It is mm-hmm. funny, because when I think of, like you said, royalty from other countries, I do th- think of them as sending their kids to Europe or to the UK to go to university. But for some reason, I can't imagine the British royal family doing that. I feel like the newspapers would make it a scandal, like our education's not good enough. Well, I think it's different now because, one, the the royal family don't have any power. Two, British public are far more keenly aware of the massive gap that has been created in the, the class system because of private schooling. 7% of 
all Brits go to a private school, but they make up like 60% of high court judges. They made up the majority of actors who have won BAFTAs. They make up the majority of people who go, people who go to private schools make up about something like 30% of all the attendees of like um, Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, St Andrews, uh, Royal College of Music, places like that. So if you are, you know, a royal, which you know, obviously there is an expectation that you need to have the best like education and all of these things, which that's fine. But you also it it makes it much much harder for you to maintain the, you know, the royals. They're just like us facade when you mm-hmm. go absolutely out of your way to be anything but just like us. Kate Middleton can barely hold on to it because you know, like she's one of us, but she went to Marlborough College, which is a hugely expensive and exclusive private school. It's interesting because we've talked about it when it came to actors. Like you mentioned, there is definitely like there's the Tom Hardy actors, and then there's like the Eddie Redmaynes and Benedict Cumberbatches, the public. Well, school Tom boys. Hardy's pretty pretty posh as well. Is he? I'll yeah, he went to Rada. Tom Hardy went to Rada. Like Tom Hardy does not come from like a non. Like I think it's because his image is so like hard man. His dad was a TV writer, and he grew up, and he went to a nice school. I think he did go to a private school, actually. But, I mean, I would say the gap is, like, you know, your Bandit Cumberbatches, your Eddie Redmaynes, your Damien Lewis's, your Tom Hiddleston's, and then your figures like... Eccleston. Jack O'Connell, Christopher Eccleston, um, Scottish people, like, like, like James McAvoy, or Gerard Butler, or, you know, Taron Egerton, I think is another one. And you can be working class and go to, a pri- and go to something like RADA. But it's so much harder. You know, it's really hard to be a, a working class kid who goes to schools like this, especially in London. It's just not, it's, you know, financially unfeasible. So that's why, you know, I think stuff like this matters when we talk about, like, we can make fun of all the prices of these private schooling and thing. And I know we've gone massively off topic, but this <laughs> is one of the things that I like talking about. The, the, the gap that it creates is hard to get around mm-hmm. and that's really really sad when, when i hear about rada i always think of this uh, story do you remember this god-awful jake gillahan movie prince of persia yes oh yeah Gemma adderton played the love interest princess in that and she has a story where she said at one point the director asked her asked her if she could uh play it more posh and she's like i went to the royal fucking academy of fucking dramatic fucking arts yes i can play posh <laughs> But that's the thing is, this is another problem with like the British acting scene now is if I think if you want if you ask like any American studio or producer or something what they're looking for in a British actor, what they're probably looking for is Benedict Cumberbatch, which means that they're looking for a very specific strain of posh central London based Englishness that comes with quote unquote good breeding. They're not necessarily looking for someone who speaks like Christopher Eccleston or has a Scottish accent or a Welsh accent. And we love to breed that in the UK ourselves. We love the idea that our actors are so well-trained, but they only get there if they can really afford it, and then they can afford to live in London and audition for job after job without having to worry about paying their rent. And I think that it is smudging out a large portion of what makes British you know, culture so interesting. And this is not just limited to Britain, it's much more stridently class-based in the UK than it is in America, but if you look at 
American actors, typically a lot of them either come from acting families or they come from a decent amount of money that allows them to go into acting. You know, there are very few true <clears throat> rags to riches stories in American acting. Mm-hmm. Like, I know we don't like Chris Pratt, but that is an example of one. He was literally spotted, like, when he was at the beach or something, and that's how he became an actor. Whereas, you know, Chris Pine, who's the best Chris, but his dad is an actor, his his grandmother's an actor, his mum is an actor. You know, he comes from that kind of background. Music industries like that too, right? Fairly incestuous. Oh, completely. Or look at, like, the modelling industry right now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like unpaid internships, right? If you want to get ahead, you need experience, which means unpaid internships, which means you need to be rich enough to afford to work without pay. And it's the same with acting. There is that cliche of waiting tables, but how many people can really afford to have to have worked two jobs and still find like time to get small acting jobs or whatever? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is when I, I, I'm constantly aggravated by actors who are like, the sons or daughters of really famous actors who are like, you know, my name didn't get me anywhere. I really still had to do the work. It's like, bullshit. Your name got your foot in the door. And that's the hardest part of the gig. It's the Emilio Estevises and, um, and Nicolas Cage's, right? Like, I changed my name so nobody would know. Like, nobody knew that Nicolas Cage was a Coppola. Oh, of course they knew Nicolas Cage was a Coppola. Right? Everyone knew. <laughs> Emilio, yeah. I really, really like you. But you, you're telling me nobody knew you were Martin Sheen's kid? Come on. We just have to look at your face. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think Emma Roberts tried to make that case. Where it was like, you know what? Me being Eric Roberts' daughter and Julia Roberts' niece had absolutely no impact on my success. You know, I had to work as hard myself. You're like, did you fool? Did you fool? I mean, there is the argument that, yeah, my name got me in the door, but I still had to work. True. But the thing is, so much of the work is getting your name established. Yeah. And I don't want to project success. You know, like I think Sophia Coppola is a very talented director, but I don't think that she would have been able to get the start in her work if she hadn't been a Coppola, because mm-hmm. her dad already had a production company set up that would help. There's plenty of examples of this. And that's the thing is, it's not denigrating to point out that the system is unfair, but you can still do good work in that. But like, right. would Max Landis have got as far as he did? <laughs> Accused sexual harasser Max Landis. Thank if you. He was, you know, given a different surname no i mean that's the thing is and and that's another reason that privilege is so insidious is because we're taught to believe that the system works fairly for everyone that the power uh, the skills of power are always balanced and you know we're still talking about outlocking aren't we uh, something, something, monarchy and ability, inherited power. <laughs> right. And you know what, Robert wouldn't have gotten anywhere if it wasn't for his dad, okay? <laughs> Which exactly. is literally but true. They, they still had to, like, say, so we don't know who has the good claim on the throne right now. Eddie, my man, can you come <laughs> over here and help us out? And Eddie's like, yeah, that sounds like a thing I would definitely do. We're going to talk this out in a church. I'm just going to lay it down to him. I don't think he's good enough to be king. It's all going to be fine. You know, he's not the kind of guy that's going to go around stabbing anyone in a church. What's the worst thing that could happen? Exactly. This whole thing of, like, inviting another country's king to, like, settle disputes, like, that ever ended well. Russian history has this fairy tale for kids where the Slavic tribes were really tired of always being at war with each other and they couldn't agree on which one of them should rule. So they went to 
the Vikings and said, we need one of you come down and rule us. And the Vikings, out of the generosity of their heart, that sounds went right. down to Kiev and Rus and said, okay, Rurik came down there with his two brothers and said, I will sacrifice myself and become your monarch. Because that's how it went. That sounds right. That's, no, really, that's beautifully selfless, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, like, the reason that the current royal family of Sweden is the Bernadotte, which, wow, that sure doesn't sound Swedish, does it? No, it's a <laughs> French name because during the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> the king of Sweden abdicated and Napoleon was like, hey, Charles Bernadotte, you want to be king of Sweden? <laughs> And Charles is like, all right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm going to learn Swedish now. Sure. And how was Sweden about that? <laughs> um, I think generally the, the royal family is reasonably popular. I mean, the, the younger generation, definitely. I mean, Estelle is adorable and makes everybody fall in love with her. And Oscar... Oscar's like three at this point and just has the most adorable little grumpy man face, little grumpy old man face of I am over the shit. I like babies that look like sad, grumpy old men. (laughs) (laughs) No, Oscar doesn't look sad. He's just like. But that sense of like, I have other things to be doing face. I love that in a small child. (laughs) I think that's amazing. (laughs) My cousin's little boy has started to adopt that face so perfectly and I love it. And, like, there were some personal family pictures that were not taken in public where he's actually smiling. And you're like, oh, good. At least you can. <laughs> Very happy. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the, the Bernadottes have been the, ro- the royal family in Sweden for 200 years at this point. So, so in conclusion, the outlooking is not without its flaws, but it's on Netflix. You don't even have to go anywhere, so... Right, you don't need to put on pants. <laughs> Honestly, that is... Chris Pine didn't, movie. so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you can barely see any bush. There's plenty of bush, but no... no yeah, no. like, it's... Well, yeah. Like, you're at home, you're going to be pausing it anyway. We're not here to judge. <laughs> Netflix might know, but they'll never tell. <laughs> Except that they will, though. Oh no, they t- they can totally tell. <laughs> they can totally tell, and they can, but they never release their viewership numbers, so they're never going to say how many people paused at that no, exact but moment. And sometimes, like last year with a Christmas Prince, they did make a tweet that, like, to the person who watched a Christmas Prince forty three times in a row, <laughs> what's your deal? <laughs> Which is meant to be really cute, but is also really insidious. Wait, wait, yeah. But kind of unsettling, and yeah. yeah. And shamey. It was kind of shamey. Mm, it's definitely shamey. Uh, Netflix has a few originals coming out. I remember finding a whole list of, like, here's your Christmas Netflix movies. There's a Vanessa Hutchins one that's, like, the princess and the not princess. Princess Switch. Yeah. Which I sort of had vague intentions of watching last night, and then didn't. <laughs> Are they making a sequel to The Christmas Prince? That one is coming out either this weekend or I think next weekend. Can we point out the fact that like 
Netflix spent $120 million making Outlaw King, but the thing that people are excited for is their Hallmark Channel ripoff. I'm looking forward to Dumpling. And I bought that I am very excited for Dumpling. I mean, look, Kaylee, it's been a very stressful year. (laughs) And while it is fun to watch Aaron Taylor Johnson run through a church beheading people and screaming Douglas! <laughs> Sometimes you really just need some light fluffiness. Okay? You can just watch the first half hour of The Outlaw King and then it's like a romantic comedy with Robert and Elizabeth. Like, I don't get to judge anyone on their taste. I had to pay to see both Robin Hood and the new Elizabeth Salander movie, so... Yeah, that's true. You don't get reimbursed for that? <laughs> Well, I can write it off my taxes later. Oh, okay. okay. Do you want to briefly tell us that Robin Hood is sadly not like bad in a good way that you'll enjoy, but just bad? Because I'm very disappointed that it's not. A, you know a what? Good bad. It's it's not the catastrophic train wreck I think a lot of people thought it was going to be. Like I saw the Mummy. This is not the Mummy. <laughs> but the thing is, the plot is so closely adhering to Batman Begins in the Dark Knight that I think that. DC could probably sue. It's a weird <laughs> movie because it's trying to be the Dark Knight as if it was made by Guy Ritchie, but also had the anachronistic fashion of a knight's tale. And that makes it sound way more exciting than it actually is. The best mm. thing about it, as is usually the case with movies like this, is Ben Mendelsohn as the Sheriff of Nottingham, who is Rickmaning it up to the nines. He goes full like Jeremy Irons and Dungeons and Dragons at points, actually. But <laughs> Even then, they give the Sheriff of Nottingham this really bleak backstory. (laughs) Like, the backstory of the Sheriff of Nottingham in this is that he was basically, as a child, kept enslaved by the clergy where he was repeatedly sodomized, often with a broom handle. What? Oh, yeah. And the film starts hinting at it. You think, they're not going to go there. Oh, no, they're actually going to go there. And it's, like, the most inappropriate thing to have in that story Ben Mendelsohn almost sells it. We're like, we just watched you like going incredibly camp. Can we not just go back to that? Can we just let Ben Mendelsohn be the really smarmy, hammy middle manager of evil, like he is in Rogue One and Ready Player One, and probably will be in Captain Marvel? Like he's good at that. Yeah, man. In other words, just just watch like. Outlaw King and Last Kingdom on Netflix. Don't bother with the Robin Hood. Look, all I'm saying was that Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie wasn't that bad. It was and very was, enjoyable. It was fun. It was like, fun. I had fun. Look, just go and watch um, like a Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movie or something, mm-hmm. you know? Or the Disney Robin Hood. Because it's never really been improved on from that, has it? Nope. No. Go have no. weird feelings about the fox. <laughs> They're not weird. They're perfectly legitimate. <laughs> or you can go have weird feelings about Sam the Eagle. <laughs> and on that beast chill note, <laughs> this is episode sixty nine. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yeah. So we'll be back uh, later. Um, our schedule is going to be kind of erratic for a while, but we're not dead. We're not dead. We're just all very busy, but I want to say on the record, Kaylee, congratulations for finishing your master's. Yay! We're very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. 
and you should be proud of yourself. Yeah, you kicked ass at it. Good job. <laughs> Thank you, and it was nice to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, sleep for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, congratulations. We'll see everyone next time. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Anglofees, a Made a Fail production. You can reach us on Twitter at Anglofees. You can send an email to anglofees at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and a review on iTunes to help other people find the show. Thank you. I was just looking on the National Museum of Scotland's webpage for uh, Robert the Bruce's sword, or is it William Wallace's sword that like they have was one made? of the ceremonial ones there, I think. But I think the actual sword is at Stirling Castle. Okay. Well, there's there's the one that they have in the the National Museum of Scotland that that's like so. Here's the thing. This sword was allegedly like peed on by William Wallace once, but it was made a hundred years after he died. So, ghost pee, ghost pee. Time you know, there were so many ridiculous legends around William Wallace that he could pee and have it still go hundred years later. Is actually one of the ones that's like, yep, seems legit. <laughs>